Well, good morning, and it's a great day to be alive and in the presence of the Father, in the presence of His family, because that's what you are today, is His family, and so there's a, it's good to call a place home, a place that we can go to that we know that other believers will stand and unite with us, and that we're not alone. And if we, we, if we had to do this thing alone, imagine how difficult that would be. Some of us have tried it, and we understand the difficulty of that. And yet, here you are with uh, a family that the Lord will, has given to you. Let's turn in your Bible to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Do we have anyone that needs a Bible? We have Bibles that we can pass out if anyone forgot to bring one. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Normally, we'll have our ushers do this, but you're so close, I'll just beat them to it. And in Galatians chapter 3, last week we looked at... No, i got to do something else first. Uh, this came up strong in my heart during worship, and so I'm going to um, just mention this, alright? Give you something to uh, consider. Now, it seems... Um, almost every Christmas, we have somebody that will get all bent out of shape about Christmas. Bent out of shape, by I mean, well, that wasn't the day that Jesus was born, and they'll boycott Christmas, and they'll do all these things. And so I don't know of anyone here that's doing that. So if, if you are doing that, I don't know it. Um, am I speaking to you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Here's the deal. In Scripture, we are not given the date of Christ's birth. We can generalize it to a vicinity of time, but we've, it's, the Lord didn't see fit to give us the date of it. And so this is the date we've chosen to celebrate His birth. So since He, he didn't give us the exact day, then it's not really that important that we get it on the exact right day. All right? This is when we celebrate Christ's birth. Maybe you say, yeah, but the community around us, the culture around us, they do it all wrong. Well, just because someone prays to the devil doesn't mean we boycott prayer. We still pray. Just because someone has the wrong focus at Christmas time or at Easter, the resurrection time, doesn't mean that we don't celebrate what it's really about. And if you look at, there's so many symbolisms in Christmas, and, and the enemy always tries to distract. And so he'll do it by, you know, the tree represents something. The evergreen tree in particular represents covenant. You can find that in Scripture. All the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, he had a conversation with a king, and he planted a grove of evergreen trees for a covenant between him and a king. And so, what you find is, is evergreen, an evergreen tree represents covenant. Well, we know that Christ was also crucified on a tree. So there's plenty of symbolisms there of what it really means, yet the enemy would like to distract you with it just being a pretty ornamental thing, and it's all about all the loot under the tree. Yet we know that the loot under the tree really represents your love to those around you, just like the Father's love, He gave you a gift. An undescribable gift is what the Word called it. 
So instead of trying to play right into the devil's hand and saying, well, I'm going to look at all the things I can find that he claims is wrong with the holiday, why not just simply look at, at Christ and what he's done for you and say, this really is a great time to celebrate his birth. And if you want to get into the hows and the whys of when his birth was, there can be a very compelling argument made for December 25th. Very compelling. Right? There's, but people have argued every month of the year. Did you know that? And yet, it really doesn't matter what month it was. And it's great to be able to say, you know what, we're all going to celebrate his birth together. Let's do it on this day. So keep your focus at the right thing, all right? All right, back to Galatians. Last week we began, I don't know, I guess it's a series. Um, At least this is sermon number two along this vein of being redeemed from the curse of the law. Maybe this will be the last one in this series, not the last one on the subject. Because as long as the sun comes up and the sun goes down, we're going to continue to preach and teach that Jesus has redeemed us from the curse. And so in Galatians chapter 3, let's begin in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, did you know if you believe God, it will be credited to you for righteousness? There's another word for that, it's called faith. When you believe God, it's faith. Faith says, I believe what He says. I believe His promise. I believe that He has the final word. I believe that He's not a liar. You know, Paul said in Romans, God, well actually it says it many times, but that God is not a man that He should lie. But he goes on and says, God is a God that calls things that be not as though they were. Declaring things that have not happened, but declaring them as though they are. And you know, when God said, let there be light, there wasn't light. But let there be light, and suddenly light was. Light injected itself, because He is light. Light injected itself into the very fabric of the universe. And I believe they call that the God particle now, if you're into science. It's an interesting, fascinating study. But yet... All of that to say that God calls things that be not as though they were. Well, that doesn't mean He's lying. That just means that what He says, when He says something, it comes to pass. Even if it didn't exist, suddenly it exists. And so, in this way, when we're just going to agree with Him. And in agreeing with Him, that's credited to you for righteousness. Just like it was to Abraham. Let's begin again in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, so understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and foretold, or told it ahead of time, the good news to Abraham, saying, All nations will be blessed in you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law. Let me talk about the law just a little bit. 
And then we're going to um, briefly go over again the curse of the law. Last week we read uh, Deuteronomy 28 that details entirely the curse of the law and what was included in the curse of the law. Man, it is ugly. I am so glad that we've been redeemed from that. And here, you know, in, in Romans, <clears throat> Paul refers to something in Romans 8 and verse 2 about the law of sin and death. He said, Christ is the law of life to us, and we've been redeemed from the law of sin and death. Well, what is the law of sin and death? Many people mistakenly believe that it is the Mosaic law, or the law that God gave through Moses. But really, it's not that. The law of sin and death goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when God stood there and looked at Adam and Eve, and He said, you know, the garden is yours. You can eat of everything that you want, but this one tree you're not allowed to eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know that they went over and they ate of that tree, but God had told them, the day that you eat from that tree, you will surely die. Now, they didn't die physically. They died spiritually that day. That is the law. They sinned and then death came. The law of sin and death entered the world at that point. And so when they enacted that law, that law got passed on down through Eve, all the way, every child, all the way down to you and I today. You know, you are a descendant of Eve. You come from good stock. So the law of sin and death we've been redeemed from. See, there's a threefold redemption that's taken place in us. There's spiritual death. That's your spirit man on the inside of you. That's the real you. All right? And the real you has a mind, a will, and emotions. That's your soul. And this tent that you see on the outside, my body, that's just a very temporary thing that gives me the rights to walk around and interact with you on the earth. Because as soon as that tent is gone, I don't have the right to do that on the earth anymore. I either go up or go down. And in my case, I'm going up. However, when that law of spiritual death is in, in place, that means the spirit is dead unto the Lord. And then physical death is just a manifestation of spiritual death. takes a little longer for that to come around, but eventually it will catch up if the spiritual death isn't taken care of. And then what results is the second death. And that is permanent separation from the Father. So those three things is what Jesus redeemed us back from and, and what He made available to us that we might be spiritually alive on the inside. He said to Nicodemus that you have to be born again. That's your spirit man on the inside. And that life, everla life everlasting will be flowing in you. And when that life everlasting is flowing in you, now when the body physically dies... That has absolutely nothing to do with your spirit man that is still alive. Amen. It's just going to be an exchange. You're planting a seed in the ground is what it tells us in Romans that is then going to sprout and come up a new body. I know, sounds weird you know, calling our bodies that, but you're not in the ground. Just the old husk you used to live in is in the ground. And uh, you are with the Lord. I want you all to picture an ear of corn on your plate. Man, it's gleaming, ready to be eaten. I mean, the corn is there. Yeah, butter dripping off of it. 
some salt on it. You can smell it. You can see the steam coming off of it. The real ear of corn. You're not thinking of the husk right now, are you? Man, the husk, we yanked that thing off and threw it away. We have the real deal in front of us. It's time some of us get a hold of that, that picture of ourselves. The real you. It's not this husk on the outside. Yet we wrap so much identity up in what's going on on the outside. On this husk. Right? But no, the real you is your identity in Christ. You're a child of God. Someone say, I am, I am. a child of God. That makes him my daddy. I told you you came from good stock. All right, back up to the curse of the law now. Christ, here in, in, in verse 10, it says, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law. Here's the curse in Deuteronomy 28. This is the curse that was on you. The curse covered your physical body. The curse covered your finances. The curse covered spiritual side of you as well. You were spiritually dead. You were physically destroyed, which starts oftentimes with disease, but sometimes it's just an enemy coming in and stealing from you. And then it also covered your finances. So health, finances, and the, and the spiritual side, death, were the result of the curse. And when we read that, we saw that on the health side of things, part of the curse was cancers and, and all kinds of disease and rash and tumors and scabies and itches and, and uh, mental diseases, you know, like uh, Alzheimer's and dementia and it said that you'd be in a cloud and in a fog mentally, and even depression was named there. All part of under the curse. And they, I mean, it named all kinds of things. I'm even forgetting a bunch of them. And then it said, you know, every disease not named here on this list is covered under the curse of the law. So they're all part of the curse. And so that was all part of uh, the curse of the law. And so if you, there was, uh, what, 630 laws, I believe? Uh, 613 laws, and if you broke one of them, you were guilty of breaking them all. And so there was curse. Well, now that was, the, that was the physical side of things. And then there was the financial side of the curse. And the financial side of the curse was simply poverty, extreme poverty. I mean, all the way down to, man, you plant a vineyard and you're not going to reap from it. And you put forth hard effort and hard work and it comes to nothing. It's ashes. Or like it says in Malachi, you know, you're suffering under the curse. Jen read this morning from there and how, you know, you put money into a bag with holes in it. And he goes on and talks in under the curse, all the things that are a part of this financial curse is, man, loss of every kind and finances, um, put forth all kinds of effort and, and not getting any, any benefit from it, things that you have being stolen and taken from you, things that rightfully are yours just being completely going up in smoke. And I mean extreme poverty to the point where you don't have food to eat to where you're eating your children. That was all named in, in that financial curse that would be on them. And... We know that Jesus made some statements. He said 
that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Well, basically, this is what the curse of the law did, is it gave the enemy unfettered access to you. Not any place we want to live. And that was the condition of someone that lived under the law and broke the law, and now this was all a bill they had to pay. Let's keep reading in verse 11. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. Like Abraham, we live by faith. Abraham, see the law was 430 years after Abraham. He wasn't under the law. He lived by faith. There was no law for him to live by. And now the law has been fulfilled. And once again, we live by faith, just like Abraham, the faith of Abraham. Verse 12, but the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. It is possible that you could live a completely blessed and fulfilled life under the law if you kept every last one of them and never broke one of them. No one was doing it. Everybody was cursed under this law. Only one man kept this law perfectly, and his name was Jesus. He came under, lived under the law, was born of a woman under the law, kept it perfectly. The Word says he was without sin, and so he, he did it. No one else did. Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So redeemed simply means He bought you back. He paid the price. He purchased you. He brought back, brought you back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So even though He lived completely right and righteous under the law, kept it completely, no curse was owed to Him, He became a curse for us, took it in our place. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. The purpose was... Here's why. The blessing of, so that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. So that we could receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's just keep reading. Brothers, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside even a human covenant that has been ratified or makes additions to it. Now the promise were, promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He's saying, man, even he, people, when they make a covenant, they don't set it aside. Right? They don't set it aside. And so how much more would God, who cannot lie, keep His covenant? You know, the covenants that came after didn't completely do away with the covenant He'd made before. They didn't, they didn't take away from the covenant He made with Abraham. Let's keep reading. Verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but to your seed, referring to one who is in Christ. So you and I may not have been born of the natural line of Abraham, but we are born of Abraham through Christ. And I say this, the law which came 430 years later does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God in Christ so as to cancel the promise. So the promises, let's just put it in a nutshell, the promises God made to Abraham haven't gone away. They still remain. Verse 18, For if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Let's just skip all the way down to 
verse 22, the Scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus may be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And if we go on and read, it says, For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, listen, if you are Christ's, how many of you are Christ's? If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. And if you'll look down into verse 4, but when the completion of time was come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So it becomes very clear that anyone who believes on Christ Jesus is of the seed of Abraham, is of the line of Abraham. You are, you are the Jews, right? Paul did not cease being a Jew when he became a believer. He actually continued being the real Jew. And the, all the Jews around him that refused to believe, they were no longer considered his covenant people because they would not be part of the covenant. He came and made a covenant, and now it's up to... Gentile, Jew, male, female, slave, free, doesn't matter, to receive that covenant. And we all become one family. One family. The dividing wall has been put, put aside. So let's go back to verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So he did this in several ways. So he redeemed us, we talked about it. he redeemed us from sickness, he redeemed us from poverty, and he redeemed us from spiritual death. Those three things were all part of the curse of the law, and he's redeemed us from those curses. So because this is a legal thing, I want to impress upon you the legality of it this morning. I want to take just a real quick walk with our fingers through the words, and we're going to just go look at several verses quick on each one of these and see that it is legally supplied to you and I. And this was a legal deal. I'll just give you a brief history here. When God shows up and He creates the world, and He makes Adam and Eve, and He puts them in it, He said, you guys have dominion over this whole thing, it's yours. You know, in Psalms it says that the earth is the Lord's, but He has given it to the children of men. He gave man dominion of it, complete rulership of it. He made man like a mere image of himself. He made them in his own image, it says. So if they were to look like him and act like him, they didn't look like monkeys or act like something different. They looked and acted like God. And when he made them this way, he says, have dominion over it. Well, we see the next thing that happens is the devil shows up and gets them to, tempts them, deceives them, and they eat, or Eve was deceived, Adam was not, he made a deliberate choice. Um, and they both ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and put themselves under the will of the enemy, the devil. And in so doing, they submitted themselves to the devil. 
And now all the rights and everything that were on Adam and Eve about this whole thing of dominion now belong to the devil. And so the rights had been sold out to the enemy. So now God has a real problem on His hands. It wasn't a problem that caught Him unawares. He saw it coming from, the, from before the foundation of the earth. And so when this happens, He goes, okay, I need to find a man that I can make covenant with in the earth and make agreement with and take back territory. And so He finds Abraham. And He makes an agreement with Abraham. And He makes a covenant with Abraham. And out of that agreement and from Abraham, Abraham's children, he makes, gives them the law eventually, 430 years later. He says, all right, here, here's what we're going to do. You're my covenant people, and you're my, you're my people in the earth, and here's the laws that you have to live by in order to really live out the plan of God in the earth. And yet, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And, and because there was these massive penalties that came with the law, and there was all these... 613 laws that they couldn't keep the father goes we need to take this thing much further I need to send someone that can keep this impossible law I've given them in order to restore them back to to right relationship and I'm going to send someone that will keep this law because then with that person he's gone and lived under my contract I've set up and he's kept my contract I can make a new agreement with that person that can affect the whole earth and get this thing back. I said it's, it's all legal. There's, there's a legal reason behind all of these things of why God did it. God is not a liar and He plays by His own rules. Do you know why gravity works? It's because He's a law He set in motion and He doesn't violate His own laws. So it works. And so here we go with... Um, he sends Jesus into the earth, and Jesus lived under the law, and he was without sin. Let's go to Second uh, Corinthians, verse uh, chapter five. Second Corinthians, chapter five, and in verse one. Uh, I'm sorry, twenty-one. Second Corinthians five and verse twenty-one it says, "He made the one who did not know sin." To be sin for us. Christ didn't know sin. He kept the law, I mean, perfectly. He came as man. He laid aside the Godship that he carried. And he lived as a man. Had to live in faith. He said, I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear the Father say. Man, in complete obedience. Kept the law completely. And so he's without sin. And it says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That was the great exchange that took place. That was how God gets the whole thing back. Now, it's still not over. It's in the process. And in time, we're going to see this whole thing completely restored. But it's still in the process and in the steps. Instead of being back at Abraham's time in the steps, or in Israel's time in the steps, or the day Jesus was born in those times, no, we're now. And, And we have... Uh, dominion and things restored back to us so let's keep looking at this so he made the one to be sin so you and i have sinned plenty he never did but he took the penalty of all of that legal remember the legal side of this so he says all right here i've got someone that lives perfectly lives under the law keeps god's part of the contract in the earth and says now now god goes i have someone on the earth that i can make this new agreement for but how am i going to settle justice for everyone else that hasn't kept this agreement 
Well, let's make the one guy that kept it perfectly that I can make a new agreement with, and we're going to have him pay for everyone else's wrongs. He's going to pay the bill for everyone so that they can come underneath his agreement and his righteousness of how he lived. And that was very fair for the Lord to offer his one son for everyone, for mankind. Because if you'll go back and you read the story of Abraham, you know, God came to Abraham after, after Abraham was an old man, said you're going to have sons, or, or, or you're going to have descendants, and he gives him Isaac, and now, you know, he's like a hundred years old. Now Isaac grows up into a young man, so now he's a hundred plus, and the Lord tells Abraham, take your one and only son, he uses this language, take your one and only son and take him up to the mountain and sacrifice him to me. And if you read in Hebrews, Abraham being the man of faith that he was, he goes, well, apparently God's going to raise him from the dead and resurrect him because that's the only way he can fulfill the promise to me through Isaac. He said it'd be through Isaac. And so I'll go ahead and sacrifice him knowing God's still going to do what he said he would do. A man of faith. But on the other side of this thing, the legal side of it, is God is sitting there and he's, when, when Abraham took his one and only son, Abraham is the man that God has the agreement with in the earth. And when he goes up on the mountain and lays Isaac out on the altar and raises his knife to sacrifice him and the angel of the Lord calls out to him and says, no, no, stop. It's at that moment that God could look at the angels and later when the accuser of the brethren says, "Why? how dare you send yourself, your son, into the earth to make this new agreement? That's not fair. Now hold on. My man on the earth was willing to give his only son for me. So I can do the same thing for them. Remember, there's a legal side to this. And that's what I want to show you today. Let's go read quickly a little bit of the uh, covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. That's where we're going to read. We'll read a few other places. And then I want to get into... The, what Jesus did for our healing and for our prosperity and uh, spiritual life. Or I've kind of covered the spiritual life already. So depending on our time is how deep we'll get into these things. So in Genesis chapter 12, this is the first time that God's speaking to Abraham. Or in this at this time, his name was Abram. And in verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, so what are we looking for? Remember, in Galatians 3, it says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Here's why. He said He became a curse for us. Here's why. So that the blessing of Abraham could come to us, the Gentiles. So let's find out what's the blessing of Abraham. What is this thing that Christ became a curse for us so that we could have? Here, in in verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Now here's, that's Abram's part. Now here's the Lord's part. He said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. Now this included a blessing of descendants. This included finances. Okay, he really has very much so finances in mind when he says, I will bless you. Say, so, well, how do we know? It doesn't say that you're going to be wealthy. Oh, it says. We'll, we'll get there in just a moment. But it's implied. When the Lord blesses you, He blesses you. When you're blessed of the Lord, that covers all of it. 
covers all of it. And we have, I mean, you just keep reading about Abraham and you see real quickly, wow, this guy moved all over the place. You know, you don't get wealthy by moving. I know. You don't get wealthy by moving because it's expensive. And every time you move, things get put on hold and business plans get put on hold and things can't proceed the way you want. I mean, if you have flocks of animals, you can't even breed them like you'd like to have them bred because they're moving and, and those things disrupt their patterns and it's expensive to move. And so here this guy is moving to a place he doesn't even know he's moving to, so all kinds of things in his life are put on hold, yet God blesses him like insanely. He says... Uh, I'm going to make you a great blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Remember, so that the blessing of Abraham would come to us, would come to you. So all the peoples are going to be blessed through you. All right, jump right on over to um, chapter 13. This was when Lot left Abram. And Abraham, uh, the Lord says to Abraham, look around the place where you are, look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if you could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk from one end of the land to the other, for I will give it to you. The blessing of Abraham is mine. I guess I own a whole bunch of the Middle East. Come on, we need to get real about these things. If the Lord said it, he meant it. Now, let's go over in, the, in chapter 14. You know how that these kings had come and attacked Sodom and Gomorrah and carried off his nephew Lot and the whole city. And then Abram, he's so blessed that he takes his 300 men, his, his, whoever's in his household, his slaves, his workers, his people, and then he says to a couple of his neighbors, come on, let's go do something about this. And they go out and defeat, what, five kings? Just a small group of 300 that means they had to have armor. That means they had to have weapons. That means they had to, I mean, they weren't going out there with a fly swatter. And so they're equipped. They go out and they, they bring everything back. Everything. And he doesn't keep any of it except that he tithes on it. He gives a tithe on it. And here's what happens. Here's more covenant that God made with Abraham. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And the literal translation to it is your exceeding great paycheck. He said, I'm your paycheck. Okay, let's go back on this. I just want this to come home for you. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why? So that the blessing of Abraham could come to us. If you are only looking at the crucifixion of, and resurrection of Christ as taking care of your sins, man, you are leaving a lot on the table. A lot on the table. Let's keep walking. In, in Genesis 17, the Lord makes a whole a lot more promises about how He's going to have so many offspring and more than the sand, more than the stars, more than you can count. And this is all going to be through Christ. All the people that are going to come to the Lord. Okay, this is how it, it 
going flashing forward through all the years. And now if you go on and you look and you see how that, um, in chapter 22, how the sacrifice that I just talked about of Isaac had taken place, or the attempted sacrifice. In verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, This is the Lord speaking. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies. And so now we have, have, as the promise of Abraham, we not only have financial prosperity and we have uh, physical health and we have um, victory. Just good old-fashioned victory, man, taken back from the enemies. I mean, gates means authority. The gates, whether or not you go through the gate, is someone with authority has to make the decision if the gate doesn't belong to you. But if you own the gate, you're the one who controls who comes and goes. And he said, you're going to possess the gate of the enemy. You're going to possess it, meaning it's yours. Looking forward to the day when authority has been given back to the redeemed. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law so that the covenant, so that the blessing of Abraham would belong to you. Now let's keep walking. We look into uh, um, chapter 26. Now he's had Isaac, he's had his son, and you go forward some years, he's, he's um, gotten married, and you see in verse 1, there was a famine in the land, in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines at Gerar. The Lord appeared to him and said, because see, everyone, where do you go when famine comes? Egypt. It happened before. Abram did it. Later, their descendants did it, went to Egypt, right? Why Egypt in a time of famine? Well, there was the Nile River. And so the whole, beside the Nile was always nice and and uh, prosperous because of the water that was always available. So they go to Egypt in the time of famine. But the Lord sees this is probably what would happen because people are all going to Egypt. Verse 2, the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land I tell you about. Stay in this land as a foreigner, and I will be with you and bless you. Well, he's talking about finances. But more than just finances, he's talking about every area of his life. He said, I will bless you, for I will give you all these lands to you, well, that's wealthy, and your offspring, and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father, Abraham. And I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your offspring all these lands, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, because Abraham listened to my voice and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. So Isaac settled there in that place. And what's even more, if you look down, you say, well, how do I know it was finances? Well, you'll see. Verse 12, Isaac sowed seed in the land in that year. Well, that's crazy. In the middle of a famine and no rain, you're out there sowing seed. What? He sowed seed in that land, and in that year he reaped a hundred times what was sown. I mean, that's like bumper of bumper crops. And the Lord blessed him. Oh, so I guess he did have finances in mind when he said, I'll bless you. Finances are included. And the man became great and went forward, increasing more and more until he became very wealthy. Everyone say very great. 
Very wealthy. That's what the blessing of God will do to you. If you'll obey Him and you'll walk in His way, then the curse of poverty is rebuked from you and the blessing belongs to you. He said He had flocks of sheep. Not flock of sheep. Not big flock of sheep. Flocks, plural, of sheep. And He had herds, plural, of cattle. And many slaves. And the Philistines were envious of Him. I mean, it got so extreme that everyone living around him was like, man, have you seen him? This is the blessing of Abraham that's on Isaac now. Have you seen that guy? It's not right. How does he do that? In the middle of a famine? I mean, bumper crop of bumper crops. This isn't right. And the Philistines stopped up his wells. So that's fine. We're going to take his water so that he can't feed his flocks and his crops. Interesting thing fascinating that when the blessing of God comes on you in a great degree something else comes with it anyone want to tell me what it is persecution with the blessing of finances comes persecution this is where you go oh yay in fact Jesus knew that that's why he said to his disciples all the way over in maybe Luke uh, 4 14 Luke somewhere Luke, Mark. Let's go to Mark. Mark 11, maybe. Mark 10. The rich young ruler that came up to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? Now notice it said he was a rich ruler. And so Jesus says, okay, the one thing you lack, he pointed out the lack. This is what you should do. You should sell everything, give everything away to the poor, and come follow me. And the man went away exceedingly sorrowful because he had great possessions. So he didn't want to do it because his possessions had him, not the other way around. So let's look at what Jesus said about it. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is for those trusting in wealth, see, he clarifies there, to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because they oftentimes will trust their riches instead of they'll trust their their means, right? More than they trust God. That's the problem with it. That's the difficulty. Verse 26, So they were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? They're like, man, there's so many wealthy people. Who's going to be saved? uh, Looking at them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. Because all things are possible with God. Even saving the rich people. Well, hallelujah. The Lord's not against rich people. What the Lord's looking for is faith. You know what really blesses the Lord? Is a rich person in faith. Why would I say that bless? Did you know that a rich person in faith blesses the Lord? I'm, I, more than a poor person in faith. Why would I say that? What does it say pleases the Lord? Faith. And what else does it say the Lord loves? The cheerful giver. Now, can you give cheerfully as a poor person? Yes, you can. You're just very limited. 
Yeah, you just can't give much. You can do it cheerfully. You know, the widow gave two mites. That wasn't much. And she gave more than the rich people because they weren't given in faith. But I would much rather give a million dollars in faith than giving a dollar in faith. Because it's all about sowing and reaping. I know that a million dollars in faith is going to reap a much bigger harvest that I can do much more for in the kingdom than the dollar will. But the dollar's a start. It's a start. Or the penny, or the whatever it is that you're planning, the button off your shirt, all right? The pencil from your bag. Whatever it is that you sowed, okay, you do it in faith, and God loves the cheerful giver, and He has equipped us to affect the kingdom. You can affect the kingdom of God a whole lot more with a thousand dollars than you can a dollar. It's just the law of finances, right? I know some some of you are like, hmm, I don't know if I like that. It's okay. You don't have to like it. You can stay poor. <laughs> so let's go on and see what Jesus said. Because I was making a point about persecution with riches. So Peter, in verse 28, begins to tell him. He says, look, we've left everything and followed you. He quickly wanted to classify himself as poor. Man, I've left it all. Certainly we qualify, Lord. And, and Jesus says in 29, I assure you, there is no one who has left house, brothers or sisters, mother or father or wife or children or fields because of me and the gospel. That, that'd be the reason for leaving. Because of me and the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions, with persecutions, and that's not all, you're not just going to receive a hundred times more in this life, and eternal life in the age to come, so it's twofold, if you leave things for the gospel, you know, when he told that rich young ruler, sell all that and come follow me, he would have received a hundred times of everything that he sold and sowed, plus eternal life, because he was following the Lord. Big blessing, big blessing. Jesus recognized that and um, Isaac found that out when he followed the Lord and stayed in the land the Lord told him to stay in and sowed there. See, by him not going down to Egypt where it looked like you'd be able to feed everyone a lot better, but him staying in the land of famine is him obeying the Lord. That's him forsaking lands and houses and, and what looks like the fat of the land to stay here in the desolate place to obey the Lord. And guess what happens? Man, bam! Blessing Abraham on him. Wealth upon him. Prosperity upon him. Since I'm already talking wealth and prosperity, let's keep going this way. I was going to talk uh, first about the healing side of it. And the legal side of all of that. But let's go, let's just continue to look at this on the prosperity side of what God has given us. Let's go to uh, 2 Corinthians in chapter 8. We're going to kind of bounce around. But I want to show you, I talked about the legal side of things. See, we're going to read a verse here that talks, it gives you the legal reason why you have the right to be wealthy. Verse uh, in Second Corinthians chapter eight, in verse nine. 
says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, although He was rich. Is heaven a poor place? No, I mean, their streets are paved with gold. So it's pretty much a wealthy place. Was he pretty rich there? Yes. Did he lay that all aside and empty himself to come and, and be as a man? Although he was rich, for your sake he became poor. So, oh, okay, he became poor for me. Wow. So that by his poverty you might become rich. He gave it up so that you could have it. And that's not just in the life to come. We have plenty of scriptures that talk about in now, at this time. Just like Jesus said, you will receive a hundred times more now, at this time, and eternal life in the life to come. It's not either or, it's both and. And this tells you, you say, yeah, but maybe it's not talking about finances. Maybe that he was made rich for your sake so that you, um, he was made poor for your sake, so that you might be made rich. Maybe that's not talking about money. Yes, it's talking about money. You can read this whole chapter and the next whole chapter, and the, these two whole chapters are about money. It starts out in verse 1 of this chapter. He says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Now, uh, you need to hear, this is talking about a particular grace of God. Not grace as in general, God helping you ability type of grace. This is a very particular gift of grace for a very particular cause. And we're going to read what that's about. But he says, to see, what is grace? Let's just answer that question real quickly. Grace is God helping you do something you cannot do on your own. You cannot do it by yourself. No one can save themselves. By grace we're saved, right? Through faith. And this is not of yourself. It's from God. So, God doing His part is grace. It's Him helping you. So in this case, He's talking about the grace of finances. I'd say it a different way, the empowerment of God for finances. The abilities of God for finances. He's saying, so about the grace that God granted to the churches of Macedonia. Oh, well, what was this grace He granted them? See, He knows that they know what He's talking about. And so He's talking about the grace of giving. The grace of of wealth, the grace of finances. Verse 2, During the severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. I testify that on their own, that means voluntarily, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they begged us insistently for the privilege of sharing, some translations say the grace of partnership, in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped. Obviously, apparently Paul was hoping that they would. But apparently they did a lot more than Paul had hoped for. He says, instead they gave themselves, especially to the Lord, and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete this grace to you. This gift to you. This gift of finances. That's what he's saying. This grace. That's what they're calling grace. Finances. It's good to have money, but it's a whole lot better when that money is God-filled. Or That's not really saying it right. Maybe a better way of saying it is, is when the Lord is in your finances, all right, involved in them, working in them, blessing them. He goes on and he says, um, verse 7, Now as you excel in everything, 
in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this grace. In what? In this grace of finances. Excel in, in God's ability and empowerment in your finances. And he says, he says, I'm not saying this as a command. God says he's not commanding it. Rather, by means of diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. He's getting ready to take an offering and he's saying, guys, I'm going to test if your love is real or not based on whether or not you give the offering. Today, many churches would run him out at this point and not invite him back. But not then. He said, I'm going to test whether or not your, your love is genuine. For you know, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, although he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. He's saying, come on guys, Jesus laid aside his wealth and took on poverty for you so that you would have wealth so that you could complete this work. Now I am giving an opinion on this because it is profitable for you, who a year ago began not only to do something, but also to desire it. But now finish the task. In other words, you guys were really eager to start this thing, now finish it as well. Finish it as well, as just there was an eagerness to desire it, so there may also be a completion from what you have. For if the eagerness is there, it is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. It is not that there may be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need, so that their abundance may also become available for your need. A sharing back and forth. That there may be an equality. As it has been written, the person who gathered much did not have too much and the person who gathered little did not have too little. Now there is a very distinct thing here. He is quoting from the Old Testament where the children of Israel went out and gathered up manna. And he is saying the one that gathered too much didn't have too much. The one who gathered not enough didn't have not enough. It does not say the one who didn't gather had. If you want to be, la be lazy and not work the principles, go ahead and live in poverty. Right? But if you are living in poverty and you are willing to work the principles of God, you do not have to stay in poverty. I know. Okay? I mean, at one time, we were so broke, we couldn't pay attention. I mean, we owed, everything around us collapsed. I owed just under a million dollars and had everything taken from us. You know, we were building a bunch of projects and when the credit crisis happened and the banks froze our loans, all of that, uh, the properties, oh, we couldn't finish our properties because the loans were frozen and, and there we were high and dry and we lost all these properties. We lost our house. We lost everything. I sold everything that wasn't nailed to the floor and some things we pried up and sold those too. Until we didn't have anything left to sell. And we didn't have money for finances. I mean, I didn't, whatever. We didn't have money for food. We were like pouring a whole bunch of water into the milk jug. At least we had white water to pour on our cereal. I mean, we were doing ridiculous things, trying to survive. And it was at that time that we came across the gospel of prosperity. There is a reason that Jesus said 
that the gospel is good news to the poor. The reason it's good news to the poor is because you don't have to stay poor. That's good news. And it was that, I mean, we, we spent a time of being homeless. We had a house to stay in, but it wasn't ours. And we had, it was, a, it was a rough time. It was a rough time. And here I was, just in the middle of, we, we got spirit-filled, we got a hold of these truths, we start sharing them with friends, and then we have a church. And you know, when you are Raymond Noodle broke, And you're preaching prosperity. People look at you like a dog listening to a high-pitched sound. <laughs> what are you talking about? And I would just say, well, my story isn't finished yet. Because we've just begun. See, some things take a while to turn the ship around. And our ship had not been one of faith-filled ship. It had been all things in the natural realm. And when all those natural things fell off and we got a hold of the gospel of prosperity and that we've been redeemed, redeemed from the curse of the law and we began to declare that we're redeemed from the curse of the law and we began to enact the principles God has put, put into His Word. You know, we were never lazy. It wasn't that we, we got into that position because we were afraid to work or anything, but we were still in that position. And so we began to believe the Word of God that we are the blessed of Abraham. That when I sow, I will reap. And if I sow a dollar, well, then I'll reap a hundredfold on the dollar. Right? Because I didn't have the million to sow. I had sometimes not even a dollar. We sowed what we had. And as we began to put those laws into place, one of the things that we began to do is we began to tithe. We got a hold of that truth of tithing and sowing. And that an offering above and beyond the tithe, above and beyond the 10%, is, is now sowing. And we began to, we decided, we made a quality decision. We made several quality decisions. Did you know you have to make a decision? It's not going to fall on you like cherries off a tree. You have to decide and drive a stake in the ground and say, this is where it's at. We're not going to move from this. And we decided, you know, we're going to go hungry and starve before we are not going to pay our tithe to the Lord. And why do I say pay it? I shouldn't really even say pay it. I should just say return it because it belongs to Him. The Word says the tithe belongs to Him. In Hebrews, that's the New Testament, it says that Christ receives it and that it's a testimony that He lives. So what, what we did is we said, all right, it doesn't matter how many bills go unpaid. This is in the middle of losing everything. I mean, we've got more bills in the red than we can imagine. And we decided we're going to tithe and we're going to return to the Lord His portion no matter what else happens. And we believe God that He's going to do what He said He would do. And it was then that we began to see the ship turn. Now keep in mind that as a ship is headed one direction and you begin to turn it, it's still going to go further that direction before the thing gets turned around and starts coming this way. But the turning began. And through the process of time and through us staying faithful to the promises of God and God staying faithful to what He said He would do, the ship got turned around and came back and out of the million that we, just under a million that we owed, um, we only owe um, a very, very pennies on the dollar now. 
We've been paying it back. We're still paying it back because of decisions we made then. But we also speak to that debt and we call it, you know, paid in the name of Jesus. And it's not going to be terribly long and it's going to be gone in history. And we, I, I remember one night laying in bed. This is before things got all taken from us, but we saw the writing on the wall. We saw a great light in front of us and it was a train. And we were laying on the track. And we realized... We are toast. And I remember laying in the bed and, and uh, Jen and I were kind of tallying up all the different places that we owed money and we realized it was just shy of a million dollars and we laid in bed and we laughed and we laughed and we, because it was either cry or laugh. Until we cried. Yeah, we laughed until we cried. And you know, the Lord was so gracious to us in that time because he was bringing the promises of God and the joy of the Lord and working in us something that was just impossible in the natural. And as we got a hold of these promises, the prosperity that the Lord talks about, the blessing of Abraham came on us. And I could keep you here for the rest of the day telling you stories and we could all share stories back and forth of the prosperity that God gives in this way. In fact, if you just keep reading here in 2 Corinthians, you'll in, in ch- finish reading chapter 8, and you go down and you look at verse 9, and it continues right on talking about this offering that they're taking. And finally, he makes it down to uh, verse 6 in chapter 9, the next chapter. He's still on this subject. And remember, this is said in the context that Christ, who was rich, for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Here's how you do it. Remember this, the person who sows sparingly, verse 6, chapter 9, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not out of regret or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you. So that's both financial and other grace. God's abilities overflowing to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. You know, you cannot excel in every good work if you don't have the money to do it. You can only excel in the good works you have money for. Right? But you can't excel in something you don't have the finance for. So this promise here is like just stunning. He goes on, as it is written, he is scattered, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower, that would be the Lord, he provides the seed. A seed grows into a plant, which then gives you a harvest. And the bread for food, he gives you the bread for food, will provide and multiply your seed and increase the fruit of your harvest of righteousness. As you are enriched, this is talking wealth, in every way, Man, if you're enriched in every way, what would the purpose of that be? Oh, here it says, for all generosity, that's why, which is going to have an effect among people. And this is what it's going to do, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. Your wealth is to glorify the Lord. You being blessed beyond your wildest dream is to point to Jesus is to do the work of the kingdom. And all these things, he's saying, I mean, if you're enriched in every way, man, 
I haven't experienced that yet. I'm believing for it, right? But enriched in every way. And how does he say? He says, for all generosity. Well, right now I can think of a lot of things I could do that I just don't have the finance for right now. So we're continuing to work that way and believe God that way. But it's time we take a hold of the promise and read it as though it were the first time we read it. I mean, when you pick up a new book or a newspaper, although today you really don't want to read newspapers much, but if it's, a, if it's a publication you trust, okay, and you're reading the article, you're reading it like, what am I going to find, right? In discovery mode, you want to know about what happened, what the news is. Well, if we would stop reading our Bible as though, yeah, I've read that a hundred times, tried it, and you know, kind of works. If we'd stop reading it that way and begin to read it as though it were the first time we ever came across this promise and release our faith on it in this way, I think the church would be experienced this thing a whole lot more. And so he goes on talking about finances there. Let's go jump right over to uh, Philippians. While you're going to Philippians, I'll read a verse to you from 1 Corinthians. So these Corinthian letters, Paul wrote these letters to a church in the city of Corinth. 1st and 2nd Corinthians, two different letters to the same place. But in 1st in Corinthians, in verse 5 of, of the first chapter, or verse 4 and 5, it says, I always thank my God for you. Listen to what Paul says. I thank God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus, that by Him you were made rich in everything. That you were made rich in everything. Is there anything left out in everything? Nope, it's pretty inclusive, isn't it? Well, either Paul's a liar, or it's true. Let's look at Philippians. If you're here this morning and you're saying, man, is this one of those prosperity churches? Oh, you better believe it. (laughs) But not for your selfish desires. It's for kingdom purposes. You know, Timothy tells us that we can enjoy our finances as well. That's what the book of Timothy says. It says that it is for your enjoyment. But that's not the only... Also, right along with it has instructions and what the rich are to do with their finances. So there's things we're supposed to be doing with it. And it's not selfish to also spend it on you. But understand that we are... an eternal being in a very temporary place. And if we spend our money on only the temporary, forgetting the eternal, man, the day is going to come when we're no longer in this temporary place and we're going to go, why did I do that? Why did I forget about all this that's coming and, and I could have really invested my money a lot more wisely. And Jesus gives investment instructions. Man, here's how you invest it. Because in that place, the stock market doesn't crash. None of that happens. Where did I say to go? Philippians. Flip over to Philippians. In chapter 4, We remember this is a chapter on offerings and finances too. Now, I need to say something. Some of you are smarter than this, and you know that's not the case. Some of you may have questions because you don't know me. I'm not saying any of this to you this morning to try to get you to give at Church of the Word International's offering basket. All right? 
our needs are well supplied without your help. Because the Lord is the one that meets our needs. What I am after is this, for you to live in the blessing of God. Okay? Whether you belong in this house or somewhere else, I want to see you prosper like God said, the, the Abrahamic covenant that belongs to you. The covenant of blessing. That the Philistines around you are envious of it. Okay, Philippians 4. This whole chapter is about finances, among other things. But he covers finances here. And he talks about them taking an offering. And if you'll look down in, in verse 13, he was talking about, you guys supported me on that one trip I took. And it was so nice that you guys did this. He said, I learned, you know, in verse 12, he said, I had a little. I know what it's like to have a little. I know what it's like to have a lot. And um, I know the secret to being content, all these things. Verse 13 He says, uh, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is a financial statement, a financial declaration. We use this for everything. You know, we use this to do a diet. We use this to, uh, to, you know, win victory over temptations of maybe ice cream. Uh, We use this for, you know, to run. My boys have used it to run races um, we use it for anything that we come up against to do. Well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? It's one of my favorite verses. Paul actually quoted the verse about money, though. So anytime you come up against a financial deal, well, you can certainly use the Scripture in context, right, of finances. You can use it for the other things, too, because Christ will strengthen you. He said, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship, because they had sent him some money. He says, and you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church partnered with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, I seek the fruit that is increasing to your account. In other words, I'm not looking for the offering. That's what Paul says here. He said, I'm looking for what the offering is going to do for you. He says, but I have received. Let's just say it a different way. If I'm Paul, I'm saying this. The $10 you give to me, Paul, is going to do a whole lot more for you than it is for me. Because it's just $10. But when $10 is multiplied a hundredfold to you, wow, that's something, isn't it? So that's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, yeah, the money is a blessing, but that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for what it's going to do for you. (laughs) Let's see what he says here in verse 18. But I have received everything in full. He had received the offering. I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Ephroditus. Ephroditus was the guy that came and brought the offering, the things you provided. And he calls it this. He said it was a fragrant offering or an odor of a sweet smell, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Your money can be an offering to the Lord. And I know that I'm preaching to the choir, all right? I know that you guys believe this and you act on it, but... I don't want you to back off of your faith on it. I want you to stay not just, not just where you've been, but to go beyond it in your faith. To expect bigger things than we've expected. I mean, to absolutely refuse to accept anything else. To refuse to accept the curse. Jesus redeemed us from the curse. We are not subject to that. We legally have something that... we have. Abraham's promises. 
the blessings of Abraham. And then he goes on, he says, verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs. We're talking legal. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Is God's riches limited? No. So he's going to, he's saying, you guys, you can't bump up against the need that God isn't able to meet. And not just that God is able, that God's going to meet. You can't bump up against a need that God isn't going to take care of. And so we have here before us the Abrahamic blessing. The blessing of Abraham that it might come down to us. I'm going to finish by reading a scripture in Luke 4 and we're closing. In fact, you don't need to turn there. You can go ahead and close your Bibles and stand up. Let's close on time for once. Jesus went to church and he got a hold of the scripture they had. It was Isaiah and he stood up and he reads and this is what he reads. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor because they have to stay poor. Nope. Nope. Okay. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Notice He didn't say He sent me to tell the brokenhearted to stay brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom to the captives. Oh, that's the opposite of captivity. Healing is the opposite of brokenheartedness. He said, the recovery of sight to the blind. So the opposite of blindness is seeing. To set free the oppressed. Well, the opposite of oppressed is free. These are the things that Jesus came to do. So when He makes the leading statement to preach the good news to the poor, all the other things He lists, He came to provide the opposite of. Just like He came to provide the opposite of poor, He came to provide riches. He Himself became poor so that you might become rich. And in 3 John, in the first, no, second verse, is it? Third verse. John makes this statement as he's writing the letter to people he was writing to. He said, you know, I wish above all things that you would be in health and prosper even as your soul prospers. So your soul prosperity is what you need to look at. Stop looking at your checkbook and start getting that soulish, renewing your mind to the Word. And one of the ways that we do that is go, oh, the Lord does want me to be blessed financially. Renewing our mind. Coming into right thinking with Him. Don't look at the problem as, oh, this is my reality. Look at the Word and say, this is my reality. Okay? Thank you, Lord, that you have just given us your word and that your word is our reality. We just declare this day that we're blessed according to your promise to Abraham and that you have made us the head and not the tail, that you've redeemed us from the curse of the law and we recognize that. We recognize that the blessing of Abraham belongs to us. Does somebody say, yes, it belongs to me? Say, I am blessed. I am the head. I am an overcomer. I possess the gates of my enemies. In Jesus' name and amen.
Well, one way we love God is by loving one another. So love on each other. We have a time of fellowship downstairs. Everyone is invited to join us there. Rejoice and be glad in it. I'm going to share from Luke chapter 19, a, a little teeny story about Zacchaeus. There was a man in his name was Zacchaeus, the head tax man and quite rich. He wanted desperately to see Jesus. But the crowd was in his way. He was a short man and couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus when Jesus walked by. When Jesus got to the tree, he looked up and he saw Zacchaeus and he said, Zacchaeus, come down. Today is my day to be a guest in your house. How would you feel if Jesus said that to you? Today is my day to be a guest in your house. Now we know that Jesus habitates within us, right? He lives within us, the, the very spirit of God. But we can create the atmosphere for that presence to be so real in our life. As Zacchaeus was desperate to see Jesus, he got out of his comfort zone, didn't he? He ran ahead of the crowd. He climbed up a tree. When's the last time you climbed up a tree? That's getting out of your comfort zone, isn't it? But he was what? Desperate. He was desperate to see Jesus. You all came today, didn't you? You showed up. Zacchaeus got in position to see Jesus. Do you know worship is not something we do on command? Do you know that? What we do here is give you an opportunity by presenting an atmosphere for you to position yourself to see Jesus. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. It's not okay when John starts, we're on cue for worship. That's not what, it's, that's not what all this is about. We come in with the expectation. We come in with that desperateness to be in the presence of the Lord, to see Jesus. And the atmosphere is created for you to enter in. Now that is done by our free will. And I just want to say in Psalms 119, it says, The word I have hid in my heart, and I have sought thee with my whole heart. Blessed thou art, O Lord, and teach me your statutes. With my lips I will declare all your judgments. I will rejoice in the way of your testimonies. I will meditate in your precepts. I will respect all your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes, and I will not forget thy word. What is the word for us today? Father God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. Jesus, our Prince of Peace, our King, our soon-coming King. Father, we're so thankful for what Jesus did for each and every one of us in his willingness and his obedience. He gave each and every one of us a way 
back to you in relationship. Father, we're so grateful for the Holy Spirit that you have given us who lives and dwells within each one of us that are born again, we recreated spirits. Father, we're so grateful today. We're grateful children. We thank you so much. We have so much to be grateful for. You are a good, good Father. Each and every moment of our life, we rejoice and honor you. Well, one way we love each other is by loving one another. Why don't we turn to one another and love on them. The greatest gift that we can truly give is love. Hallelujah. Love was given to each one of us, and it was the greatest gift. Good morning. Everybody excited to be at church this morning? Singing about our Savior? Don't you just love this time of year? All time of year. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> Something special about this time of year. We're reminded of the greatest act of love. Being intentional. And I just want to put you in remembrance this morning. I know that many of you know these things, but perhaps this is the very first time you've heard this. So I'm going to remind those that already know. And if this is a new thing, well, glory to God, it's the word. That the tithe is the Lord's. Let's remember that the tithe belongs to him. And I want to read out of Malachi chapter 3. See, the tithe is an outward demonstration of my trust in God as my provider. It's an outward act of an inward belief. And we're going to begin reading in verse 8 of chapter 3 of Malachi. It says, Will a man rob God? Or if you look in the literal, it would say defraud. The definition of that word there would be defraud. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Well, here's how says, in your tithes and contributions. Notice it's two different things, tithes and contributions or offerings. Verse 9 says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, we've been hearing about how we've been redeemed from the curse. So this is part of this. We're no longer under a curse for not returning the tithe. However, you're not aligning yourself for the blessing either, which we will see as we, we go on. I just want to point out that Jesus told us to tithe. Did you know that? In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is, is giving the Pharisees the what for. And he says, you know, you, you're doing all this tithing stuff, but you're forgetting the important things of justice and the love of God. And he had the perfect example to say, you know what, boys, why don't you just forget about that tithing stuff? It don't matter anyway. And what did he say? He goes, no, you should do that. Do the tithe, but don't forget this other stuff. This is, more, this is even more important, but he didn't tell us just, you know what, this has passed away and all of that. So, Jesus told us to do it. So, let's keep reading. Verse 10 says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby, or by this, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. 
Doesn't that sound great? Pour out provision, we could say. Pour out provision until there's no more lack. It's taken care of over here. Okay, this is handled, but this over here. Oh, no, that's handled too. Provision until there is no more lack. Blessing. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So you know what? There is an enemy. There is an entity out there that would, to, that would devour from you, that would try to rob from you. The Lord's going to block that. This is what's available to you, to the tither. This is the promise being made. Aren't you glad that you're not on your own? that you have supernatural help, that you don't have to just look at your resources and what's available to you, that you can align yourself, partner with the Lord, and he has promised to do these things for you. Well, I'm excited about that. It's absolutely changed our life as far as our finances. When, when we had no hope, and I'll tell you what turned around for us is when we started walking in, in the tithe, when we started doing the word when it came to the tithe. You know what? This works in putting our trust in the Lord and in his word. Absolutely was the way out. So let's take a hold of our tithes and let's pray over that. Father, we're so grateful to you this morning that you are a good provider and that you are our source and that we can 100% trust you that we can fully rely on you to keep your word. And I just thank you this morning for the blessing you've promised to the tither. I thank you this morning for rebuking the devourer for our sake, for the tither's sake. And we give you all the praise and the glory, and I thank you for it, Lord, that all the needs are met in this house. In Jesus' name, and amen. And the ushers, you can pass the baskets.